Let's talk for a minute about unmitigated disasters. Super fun times, I know. Welcome to church. Unmitigated disasters. Me and games night. It's not a good situation. I've talked about it before. I don't need to say it again. Don't invite me over for games night. I don't like it. Why don't I like it? Because it always gets ugly. I come from a family that went to battle over games night. My sister was known to pick up the risk board three hours in and just throw it. So ever since then, I've been scarred for life. Me and games night, it's an unmitigated disaster. Me and traffic, again, we've talked about this. I talk a lot about my sinfulness and my weakness. Just last week, I was driving north to church, no less, and I was sitting at Edinburgh, where you turn right on Woodlawn. You know, you kind of sit there next to the Thames, and there's a truck in front of me, and I'm sitting behind the truck waiting for him to turn right, and I'm starting to fume a little bit. And I said to my wife, like, I actually said, I'm so I'm ashamed to admit it. Oh, she said, why is he not turning? <laughs> and then the light turned green, and he drove straight through into the factory. And I was like, oh, I'm scum of the earth. Now, in my defense, I had never, ever seen anyone drive straight through. Everyone always turns right there. So I thought it was like an aberration, but man, the Lord used it to whoop me. I felt so, anyway, I repented real quick. And fortunately, I didn't do anything crazy. My brother is even crazier than me. If you ever meet him, he fought a guy once in Israel, like pulled over on the side of the road and like got in a fight. It involved crowbars and stuff. It was ugly. So I'm like the lesser of two weevils. Um, <laughs> unmitigated disasters continue. Me in useless meetings. I will admit that when I was a youth pastor, if I detected that a meeting was useless, I would lie down on the floor, put my hat over my face and go to sleep. And they would ask me about it. They're like, what are you doing? And I was like, this is a two-hour meeting. I might as well get some good out of it. And they looked at me like, you crazy. And I was. But I, I, me and useless meetings is an unmitigated disaster. Um, me and church sports leagues, can I get an amen? <laughs> Anyone ever played in one of those? You know what I'm talking about. I had to quit church sport leagues. I used to, man, my youth group when I was a kid growing up, like we would go and play other youth groups. Like we're playing basketball. You think it's like the Valley of Armageddon, man. It's the end of the world. I had to quit. Actually, anyway, I won't, it's an unmitigated disaster. Me and church sport leagues. Um, me and idiot referees. I coach football at Centennial. I've coached football for about, I don't know, 12 years now. And uh, I once got, it's hard to admit, two consecutive 15-yard penalties for sarcasm. <laughs> I didn't even know that's like a finable offense. I'm not cussing. I'm not, uh, I literally said, Thanks for that wonderful call, ref. And whoop, out goes the flag. I was so, he actually threatened to eject me. So me and idiot referees, it's an unmitigated disaster. One last one, uh, just to kind of get you smiling a little bit. You may know this about me. All God's people said amen. Me and remembering appointments is a bad situation. I got to say thank God for iPhones. Now that they have, you can put like a notification. I sometimes have to put three. I sometimes put like a week ahead, a day ahead, and then like, you know, half an hour ahead because... It just doesn't come in my mind. Like, I book an appointment, and then I forget about it. Right? I figure you write something down so you don't have to remember it. So me and remembering appointments, it's an unmitigated disaster. It just is. It always has been. I keep trying to repent, but I never change. You never change. So here's your thesis this morning. No matter how hard you try, if you try to do life without God present at the heart of it, it's just going to be one unmitigated disaster after another, which is why you need Jesus. Let me... Uh, show you what I'm talking about. This is the awful, despicable, unpreachable Genesis 34. 
Now uh, Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Yaakov. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Yaakov heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Yaakov held his peace until they came, and Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Yaakov to speak with him. The sons of Yaakov had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry, because he'd done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Yaakov's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor said to them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and, I, and gift as you will and I will give you whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Yaakov answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to him, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised. That would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem And the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Yaakov's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become our people, when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of the city. On the third day, when they were sore, <laughs> two of the sons of Yaakov, Shimon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it fell secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Yaakov came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Yaakov said to Shimon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should you treat our sister like a prostitute? Can you believe I'm going to preach this chapter? It's funny, um, in studying this chapter, the commentators actually say this chapter has zero homiletical value. Literally, one of them said, no preacher in his right mind would ever choose to preach this passage. So I was like, great, my life is awesome. As you know, I just preach through books of the Bible, so I'm not going to skip a chapter when we come to it. I looked harder, and lo and behold, I found a few things. I found here in Genesis 34 a picture of what happens when God is absent. You know why I came to that hook? It might blow your mind, unless you already know it. If you already know it, then maybe you could preach next week. Who already knows I'm talking about? Who's not the worship team? You're like, I don't know, Todd. Give me something to work with. 
Genesis 34 is the only chapter in Genesis so far where God does not appear even once. I checked. I read every chapter on Thursday. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, 32, 33. Every single chapter in Genesis up till now, God shows up. He's present, he's named, he's active. But this one, he's absent. I found 12 things that will show up in your life if God ain't there. So that's why you need to pay attention to this despicable chapter today. Because you may see echoes of these behaviors showing up in your life when God is absent. Now, theologically speaking, we know God is everywhere present all the time. He's omnipresent. He is everywhere present all the time. So we're not talking in an objective sense that God is absent, like he has disappeared. Okay, but we're speaking methodologically. We're speaking in terms of your practice, the way you live your life. We're talking here about relative closeness to God, relative immersion in the Spirit of God, walking by the Spirit so you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh, being present with God, in relationship with God, close to God. To worship God means to come close and kiss the Lord. Proskuneo. Proskuneo. To come close, bend the knee and kiss Him. Closeness to God. Twelve things you'll see here that might happen in your life when God is absent. One. You may end up defined by what's happened in your story instead of being defined by God's story. We see this outline in verses 1 and 2. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she'd born to Yaakov, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. So other than being born in Genesis 30, 21, this is Dinah's moment. This is her moment on stage. This is it. Who's Dina again? Oh yeah, she's that girl who was raped. That's who Dina is in biblical history. My question for you is this. Have you allowed yourself to become defined by what's happened to you? Okay, you'll know it even now, listening to me speak if you've been like Dina at all, if you have allowed yourself to become defined by what's happened to you, and you're thinking, what happened to her was awful, and I say to you, yes. And you're saying, what happened to me was awful, and I say to you, yes. So even now, if you're sitting here in this room and something awful has happened to you in your past, that you know, if you're honest, has come to define who you are, as a gospel preacher who loves you, I get to say to you this morning, if anyone is in Christ, behold, they are a new creation. The old has passed, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Receive it. And apply it. And from this day forward, one step at a time, stand on it. If anyone, even Dina, is in Christ, she is a new creation.
I've told you before, but maybe you forgot. The Greek word here used for new is not neos, which is the Greek word new for time. It's kainos, which means new in regards to form. Which means that in Jesus, the very form of your life has been transformed. So as awful as your past may have been, the glory that is yours in Christ, the freedom that is yours in Christ, is incandescent in its glory. And you can walk in it. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Yes, you In Jesus, you are something new. In Jesus, you don't have to worry anymore or ever again about being seen or trying to belong. And Dina went out to see the women of the land, verse 1, except in Hebrew. She went out, Liraot be banot haaretz. Liraot, to be seen. Be banot. Banot is the word for girls. Be, in. She went out to be seen in the girls of the country. Okay, let's keep receiving it here. This is good. The needs to be seen and to belong is human. Okay, this is a human need. All of us have it. So if you feel the need to be seen and to belong, know that this is a deeply embedded human need. It's a basic human need. Okay, so that is good. If you feel that is part of your life, accept it. That's how you are. God made you that way to be seen. But ultimately, he made you that way to be seen by him. Do you see the difference? This need to be seen and to belong, if God is absent, you know this, don't you? It can become corrosive. Don't show me your hand, but how many of you in your life have ended up in corrosive situations as a result of your need to be seen and to belong. It's only corrosive when God is absent. See why our world is so dark and lost? Because God is largely absent in most people's life experience. And so all they have left is the corrosiveness of a sinful and a dark world. Madmen walk into mosques and shoot people. And where princes grab young girls off the street and rape them. Friends, God sees you, and you belong to him. Well, I, I could shout that, but hopefully you get it nonetheless. He sees you, and you belong to him. See, the stability that comes from knowing this Because that would be a stabilizing factor, would it not? You could see how that would be a stabilizing factor if you truly got to the point where you actually believed, like in your guts, that God sees you. And you belong to Him. And no one can snatch you from His hand. Could you see how that would be the only stabilizing reality you would ever need? Not, I mean, if you see that. Do you see that? The only stabilizing reality you'd ever need. The stability that comes from knowing that you belong to God and that He sees you is the only thing 
that will help you raise well-adjusted kids when it comes to sex, love, and family. Because if God is absent, you're going to end up all jacked up in the sex, love, and family department. Look at this kid, Shechem. Verse, 20, verse 2 through 4. So, Shechem sees her, grabs her, lays with her, humiliates her. Okay, so it's polite biblical language for rapes her. And his soul, now listen to this. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Chamov, saying, get me this girl for my wife. It's very, very, very jacked up. Sees her, seizes her, takes her, then falls in love with her, woos her, and wants to marry her. So, a couple questions on this. Um, what happens when you have sex with somebody? Mark chapter 10 gives us uh, a clue in verses 6 through 9. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So Mark, here in chapter 10, is quoting Genesis 2.24, where God originally makes Adam and Eve male and female. And this is also what Paul is quoting in 1 Corinthians 6, Verses 15 through 20. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? That's the key part right there. For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord must be- becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against their own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? So you are not your own. (laughs) You're not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So, here's what happens when you have sex with somebody. Verse 3, And his soul was drawn to Dinah. You know what it says in the Hebrew? Batidbak nafsho bedinah. And you guessed it. Tidbak means stuck like glue. And he glued his soul to Dinah. So, the biblical pattern is clear. Hear me now, church. Sexual intercourse is meant for marriage. How do we know? Why else would you want to glue your soul to somebody unless um, you needed to stick together through thick and thin as you try to raise a family and build a life to God's glory for your joy, and through the transforming of your life, the good of the world. I mean, why else would you do it? What will happen is uh, these two sheets of paper that I have just glued together, for those of you podcasting this sermon, what will happen to these uh, two sheets of paper once this glue dries? They will become 
essentially, for all intents and purposes, one sheet of paper. So, um, can I just tell you something as a Bible preaching pastor who loves you? Sex is not a toy. Sex is a tool. It's a tool for making families that make babies who grow up to become God's friend. So, um, maybe leave the glue on the shelf until it's time to stick to somebody. Doesn't mean the glue's bad. It's good. It's awesome. You're never going to get sick of it. Trust me. It's amazing. Doesn't get boring. Ever. Okay? But just leave it on the shelf uh, until until it's time. Until it's time. Because believe me, once the kids show up, you're going to need to stick to your partner like glue. So um, make a decision, take action. Say, nice glue, good glue, stay there. Make a decision. Unlike our friend Jacob, who heard, verse 5, that... uh, Shem had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were in the field with his livestock, so Jacob held his peace until they came. I expected to read, and Jacob heard that Shem had defiled his daughter. He grabbed his staff and went to whoop that son of a donkey. Hamog, remember I told you, means donkey? Literally, Shem is the son of a donkey. The Bible is so amazing, right? It's much less uptight than we are. Yo, imagine. I'm running. I'm running to that city. I'm running. I'm about to whoop. I'm about to whoop a fool. I'm about to whoop this kid. I'm a whoo. Ah. Mm. Instead, Jacob's like, no, I'm going to wait till the boys get back. Fourth point now, when God is absent, um, you may find yourself becoming disconnected and indecisive. And I told you, when I preach the Old Testament, I preach, preach biblical pattern, right? Not like one-time thing, because if it's like the one time this ever happened, I couldn't preach it, right? Because you'd be like, this happened one time, don't build your life on it. But indecision and disconnection is definitely a biblical pattern when God is absent. Adam is standing right next to Eve, as the serpent says to her, the fruit looks pretty good, I think you should eat it. And he does not say, hang on a second, maybe not. Stands there and lets it happen. But wait, there's more. King Saul. God is absent. What does he do? Goes to consult the witch at Endor. Doesn't go well. King Solomon. Too many wives, not enough God. What happens to him? His wives lead him astray. Moses with the rock. What does God say to Moses with the rock when they're running out of water? He says, Speak to the rock. Moses is like, where you at, Lord? Where you at, Lord? Oh, I better do what I did before. Strikes the rock. 
God's so upset with him that he does not allow him to enter the promised land, but kills him on a mountaintop overlooking the promised land. All right, when God is absent, you may find yourself becoming disconnected and indecisive. Can I speak to the men for a second? Give me permission. Nod at me if I'm allowed. All the ladies said amen. All right. <clears throat> Woo, all right. Any man who doesn't know how to be a man just needs to read his Bible so he can get to know what God is like and what he expects from his men. Okay, so you men, if you are feeling disconnected and indecisive, may I suggest to you as a Bible-preaching pastor who loves you that you get to know the God of the Bible a little more so that you'll know what he expects of his men so that you'll do it. Does that sound like a plan? I have met so many disempowered men in my years in ministry simply because they don't know their Bible. It's like step one. You would, be, you would shudder at the number of biblically illiterate men I have pastored in my life. If you're a disempowered, disengaged husband and you want to stop it, start devouring your Bible. Open the mouth that God gave you and sing to Him in worship. Find a church, any church, I don't care if it's this church, where you can sit under manly gospel preaching so you can learn who God is and what that means for you as a son of Adam made in God's image and likeness. Okay, the only way to eliminate male numbskullery in the world is to connect as many men as possible to Jesus, who is the ultimate man. Now, if you're a lady, you're thinking, but men and women are both made in the image of God. Yes, they are, absolutely. And we see God's godness in you ladies. But God the Son came as a man, Jesus. He was crucified as the man, Jesus. He was buried as the man, Jesus. And he arose as the man, Jesus. And he ascended as the man, Jesus. Which means when you meet Jesus, you're going to meet a man. Okay? So he's the ultimate man. So if you want to be a better man, you better get better at understanding who Jesus is. Y'all feel me? It's simple. I mean, it's not easy, but it's simple. I could go on, but I'm out of time, so I won't go on. We'll save it for another sermon. Um, if you don't do this, point number five, depression and decadence will become your new normal. This is what happens in verses six through seven. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went to meet Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. So an outrageous thing in the Hebrew is a decadent thing. He had done something decadent, this man who did not know the God of the Bible. And so he acted in a way that was decadent, in a way that ought not to be done. And Jacob's sons were depressed about it. And they were broken with sadness, and they burned with rage. Very important point. How many people do you know who are broken by sadness and who burn with a secret rage? Am I preaching this morning? How many people do you know who are broken by sadness and they burn with a secret rage? Jesus is the only answer. Because as Jesus Christ, God the Son made flesh, hung on the cross, God the Father poured out His wrath upon Him. And He punished Him so harshly in your place for your sin 
and for the sins of the world, that there was no sorrow like unto his sorrow, prophesied in Lamentations 1.12. Here's the point, church. All your rage and all your sorrow was dealt with once and for all at the cross of Jesus Christ. And if that doesn't give you immediate relief, it's only because you have not surrendered to Jesus yet, which means you're still running your own life. Which is why, point number six, the lure of prosperity and security keep taking center stage in your life. Did you see this in verses 8 through 10? Hamon's trying to get them to forgive this nefarious deed, this awful, awful criminal act, by tempting them with prosperity and security. Hey, why don't you stay a while? Everything we'll have will be yours. It'll be good. We could be like one family. Shvu ve sacharuha ve achzuba. Sit. Sell her. Speaking of the land. So callous. Sell her. Sit. Sell her and hold on to her. Speaking of the land, God's land, God's earth, God's creation. Sit. Be secure. Sell her. This is capitalism run amok. Sell her, do whatever you want, and hold on to her. Friend, life is not meant to be used for your comfort and glory. Life is about the glory of God and the good of the world. You come third. If you have a spouse, you come worse than third. Right? It goes God first. Right? His creation in this context. Your wife, your kids, your job, then you. You come third. And if you feel like such a failure as you're listening to me talk on this, I just want to remind you that you're biblical. Shechem also said to her father, verse 11, and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes. And whatever you say to me, I will give. What is the word for favor? It's grace. Give me some grace. If we take this at face value, he's asking here for mercy. That's literally the word. Let me find mercy in your eyes. Let me find grace. You ever felt like you need grace? Maybe you've never done anything like what Shem did, but you know that you have committed evil things. You have done evil things. If you ever felt like you needed grace, join the club. And it's my privilege to point out to you this morning that outside of God, there is no grace. Left to our own devices, point number seven, we need grace, but we get vengeance. Verse 13, the sons of Jacob answered Shechem deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. And I already read to you what they do. They enact a horrific act of vengeance. I want to just point out about vengeance, it's only meted out when God is absent. And you may not be thinking you want to go sack a city, but you may be still hating that person who wronged you. You may still be defining your life by your desire for justice to be done. And I'm here to remind you this morning as a gospel preacher who loves you that vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Romans 12, 19. So, teachable point, very importantly, God owns vengeance. Don't steal from Him. Amen? Remember this. He owns vengeance. It's his. Don't take it from him. Also, while you're at it, don't become an annoying salesperson. I mean, I I know they want us to all take a blade to our privates, but, verse 23, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them. 
Sounds like a very good deal to me, fellas. What do you say? What do you say? They're at the gate of the city. Every man in the city is there, and they're selling these fools. They're selling these fools. Point number eight, you'll know that God is absent from your plans when you've got to work really hard to sell them. Anytime we're left to our own devices or we take matters into our own hands, it tends toward ugliness. And that's exactly what happens in verses 25 through 31. All the men of the city circumcise themselves on the third day when they're sore. <laughs> Shimon and Levi grab their swords and they go in and they massacre all the men of the city. Without Jesus, and worship team, I'm finishing so you can join me. Without Jesus, point number nine, you draw your sword to kill like Shimon and Levi in verse 25. Without Jesus, point number 10, the darkness in you cascades to those around you, like in verses 27 through 30, as the rest of Jacob's sons run up upon the city and plunder it. Literally in the Hebrew, they trash the city. I want to point out that the darkness in Shimon and Levi cascaded into their brothers' lives, and they ran up and desecrated the city. Without Jesus, point number 11, life gets harder, not easier, like when Jacob realizes what his sons have done in verse 30. Do you see it in the text? It's like, you've made my life difficult. I'm small in number. If they find out what we've done, they're going to overrun us and they will destroy us. Without Jesus, point number 12, most of the time, most of us still won't bend the knee even when confronted with the consequences of our actions. Here, the defiant, godless retort of the sons of Yaakov to his rebuke. Ma What, like a whore? They'll do our sister? Not exactly like a repentant response. There's no mercy or goodness anywhere in this chapter. Which is why its characters are defined by what's happened to them in their story instead of by God's story. This is why they've forgotten that God sees them and that they belong to Him. That's why they've gotten love, sex, and family all mixed up. It's why they're disconnected and indecisive, why depression and decadence have become their new normal, why the lure of prosperity and security have taken center stage, and why they need grace, but they get vengeance. This is why they're working so hard to sell, believe, and buy into a counterfeit system, and what a picture of our world is that. This is why, point number nine, they draw their swords to kill, and point number ten, the darkness in them leaks. You see the darkness leak in our world? Do you see it? Darkness leaks, friend. And this is why despite their efforts to the contrary, life keeps getting harder and harder, and most of the time, most of us still won't bend the knee. Because God is absent, and we've lost our way, and our life as a result is an unmitigated disaster. Friend, don't let it happen to you. Don't let it happen to you. Don't just remember your appointments, but my friends... My dear, dear friends, remember Jesus.